This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we begin with the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I'm sure we know the show starred Basil Rathbone as Sherlock and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. But what do we really know about the creator of all those marvelous stories, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself? Well, we've got a bit of time in our hands tonight, so let's delve into his history just before listening to another one of his tales. We'll pick up his story from when he studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh Medical School. And while studying, Doyle began writing short stories. And in light of his future as a writer dealing with crime, I found this kind of interesting. In September of 1879, he published his first academic article, Galsemium as a Poison, in the British Medical Journal, a study which the Daily Telegraph regarded as potentially useful in a 21st century murder investigation. Doyle was a staunch supporter of compulsory vaccination and wrote several articles advocating for the practice and denouncing views of anti-vaccinators. But here's what I found to be most interesting. Doyle had a long-standing interest in mystical subjects. These included attending around 20 seances, experiments in telepathy, and sittings with mediums. He found Solus supporting spiritualism and its attempt to find proof of existence beyond the grave. Doyle was friends for a time with Harry Houdini, the American magician who himself became a prominent opponent of the spiritualist movement in the 20s following the death of his beloved mother. Although Houdini insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery and consistently exposed them as frauds, Doyle became convinced that Houdini himself possessed supernatural powers, a view expressed in Doyle's The Edge of the Unknown. Now, Houdini was apparently unable to convince Doyle that his feats were simply illusions, leading to a bitter public falling out between the two. Well, it's time now for that promised program as we hear Sherlock Holmes and his trusted aide, Dr. Watson, and the episode, The Limping Ghost. Let's rewind, brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another of his fascinating stories about his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now let's look in on our good friend, Dr. Watson, and see if he's expecting. Oh, come in. Come in, Mr. Bartell. You're just the man I've been expecting. How are you, Dr. Watson? It's good to see you again. Oh, thank you, my boy. It's very nice to see you again, too. I've missed our Monday night visits during the last three months. 
yourself down. Uh, would you care to join me in a, in a glass of port? Well, thanks, Doctor. That'd be nice. You know, it seems to me, after our summer vacation, a toast to the great Sherlock Holmes would be in order. That's an excellent idea. Here you are, young fellow, my lad. Thanks. You propose the toast, Doctor. To Sherlock Holmes, master detective and loyal friend, whose adventures have brought considerable, we say, fame to a certain retired doctor now living in Northern California. I'll drink to that. Well, now, suppose I might as well get on with tonight's story. Which particular adventure have you selected, Doctor? One that I call the limping ghost. Sounds exciting. And, as usual, you find me saying, how did it begin? In Baker Street on a windy December evening at the turn of the century. A young, white-faced boy sat in front of our blazing fire. And as he told us his strange story, the flickering firelight danced weird patterns on the walls. The young man was Alexander McMorris, the seventh Earl of Loch Nair. The Earl of Loch Nair? Say, uh, didn't I read in the papers the other day that the 8th Earl of Loch Nair had been killed in an airplane accident? Quite right, my boy. Even in this day and age, the tragic history of violent death seems to dog the footsteps of the Loch Nair family. But to return to my story. On that December night in 1900, we heard the whole history of the limping ghost of Loch Nair. The first Earl had lost a foot at the Battle of Flodden Field in 1513. In spite of this terrible handicap, he fought on valiantly until he died on the battlefield from loss of blood. From then on, right until the time this story begins, the limping ghost, clad in a suit of armor, always appeared at Loch Nair Castle before and after the death of the current Earl. Yes, Mr. Bartell, it was a strange story that Sherlock Holmes and I listened to that night. A story of death and horror over the centuries, punctuated by the limping clank of ghostly armor. <laughs> news for you. Your husband, the Earl, was killed in the explosion that destroyed Lord Darnley. Milady, the Guy Fawkes plan to blow up the Houses of Parliament has failed. Your husband is in the Tower of London. They say he's to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. <laughs> Madam, I regret to inform you that your husband, on my instructions, has been arrested for murder. I have no doubt And that's the story of the Loch Nairs, Mr. Holmes. You were instrumental in sending my great-uncle to the gallows, a fate which he richly deserved, I'm told. So it seemed only natural to come here to Baker Street and consult you now that I'm in trouble. I shall be most happy to do anything I can to help you, sir. I don't remember anything about your sending the Earl of Loch to the scaffold home. Well, he did, Dr. Watson. Mm -hmm. And the servants have always sworn the ghost really did walk at midnight on the day that he was hanged. Indeed. Now, sir, I suggest that you tell us what problem brought you here. The ghost is walking again, Mr. Holmes. You know what that means. According to the legend, that the present Earl will die. Exactly. And as I'm the present Earl... <laughs> You can see why I'm rather worried. Am I to understand that you've actually seen this ghost yourself? Yes, Mr. Holmes. The night before last, Betty, well, that is, Miss Nolan and I, were sitting in the dining hall in front of the fire when we heard a strange sound up in the musician's gallery. We looked up and in the moonlight saw a ghostly figure in armor limping towards the staircase. Oh, gracious me. Uh, my dear sir, you're certain that you really saw it? Moonlight can play strange tricks, you know. There wasn't any doubt about it, Doctor. Both saw and heard it. What did you do? 
I started to go towards the stairs, but as I did so, Betty screamed and then tumbled to the floor in a heap. Mm. Fainted, I suppose. Yes. While I was reviving her, the, the ghost disappeared. Who's staying with you at Lochner Castle at the moment? Well, there's Betty Nolan. She's the sister of James Nolan. He looks after my estate. Uh, Betty and I are engaged to be married. Oh, congratulations, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyone else staying with you? Yes. A distant cousin of mine, Jeremy K. McMorris, an American. He turned up in England a couple of months ago with his son, Walter. They're both with me at the present. A distant cousin. That's right, Mr. Holmes. Actually, they're descendants of a more than usually black sheep branch of the family. I, uh, I don't know how long the old man's going to be with us, though. You ask me, he's a dying man. How do you say that, sir? As far as I can gather, he's been wasting away for years. It's only a question of time before his strength fails him entirely. I, uh, <clears throat> was hoping perhaps you could take a look at him, Dr. Watson. That is, uh, if I could persuade you and Mr. Holmes to come and stay at the castle for a few days. Well, what about it, Holmes? It's an intriguing problem, Watson. The current Earl of Loch would seem to be in danger. A cousin of his is dying of an obscure disease, and the ghost of Loch Castle is walking again. Yes, it's an irresistible invitation. I see no reason why we can't leave on the Scotch Express tonight. Been quite a heavy fall of snow here in your absence, young man. Quite so. And judging from the color of the sky, there's more to come. Mm, very angry looking. Mm. Oh, now as we round this bend, you'll be able to see the castle. Ah, yes. There you are, gentlemen. <laughs> Magnificent. Yes, it's a fine place, all right, Doctor, though it cost me a great deal in upkeep. Matter of fact, I only have one wing open. There's always been something of a problem to get servants to come and live here. See, the local villagers have a great respect for the Loch ghost, you know. What servants do you have at the castle at present? A cook housekeeper, Mrs. McClintock, fine old lady who's been with me for six years now. And then there's old Tamas. He served my family for as long as I can remember. As a matter of fact, there he is now. Hello, Tamis. I'm glad to see you back, my lord, and that's a fact. Oh, thank you, Tamis. Oh, these gentlemen are Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson. Good day to you, gentlemen. Good day, Thomas. Good day. Uh, before I take the trap round to the stables, I may as well break the news to you. Yes, what's happened, Tamis? It's your cousin, my lord. Poor old Mr. McMorris. He's dead. Huh? Died early this morning. God rest his soul. Yes. I'm very sorry that I arrived too late to be of any help. Well, thank you for telling me, Tamis. Oh, you may take the trap round now. Aye, sir. I'll bring the baggage up me. So he's dead. Well, I can't say it's unexpected, but it is a shock, nevertheless. I'm sure that it must be, particularly as you yourself told us you saw the ghost of Loch Nair the night before last. In which case... In which case, Watson, I think we may reasonably expect another visitation. Perhaps before the night is over. Should we go in? This is Miss Nolan, my fiancée, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and Dr. Watson. I'm very glad to meet you. How are you, And uh, this is her brother, James Nolan, the manager of my estate. How do you do, sir? How are you, Mr. Nolan? Much better for seeing you both up here. I'm sure it won't take you long to lay this ghost business by the heel. Oh, well, I trust you don't overestimate our abilities, Mr. Nolan. Alec, you... You've heard about your cousin, of course. Oh, yes, my dear. Tamas told us as we drove up. Where is Walter? He went into the village with the doctor and the body of his father. Oh. He should be back soon. How's he taking it? Very quietly. Too quietly, if you ask me. Those Americans are pretty demonstrative people, you know. And Walter's been no exception. But he behaved very strangely this morning. And the doctor told him his father was dead. He just said, now things will start to happen and then shut up like an oyster. 
Why can't they get a tail of the fellow? Uh, yes, quite so, Carter. Uh, Mr. Holmes, I expect you and Dr. Watson would like to go to your room. Yes, I must be. Nice. I think I'd first like I'd like to... to take a look at the um, musician's gallery, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, of course. Could you excuse us, darling? All right, Alice. It's uh, in the dining hall here. <laughs> they must have been very hospitable people in those days. Fifty or sixty people could eat at that table. <laughs> yes, Doctor. Needless to remark, we hardly ever use the room nowadays. There's the musician's gallery, Mr. Holmes. Oh, yes, yes, I see. How do we get up there? I'll show you. Here, there's a stone staircase behind this tapestry here. Follow me. Watch your step. It's quite narrow, rather dark. Watch your head, Watson, old chap. Oh, don't worry about me, Holmes. I'm perfect. Oh, I say. Must have built these stairs for pigmies. Oh, yes. Here we are, gentlemen. This is the musician's gap. Hi, Joe. It must have made a pretty picture in the days gone by. A little string orchestra fiddling away up here and down below the Scottish nobility bobbing and floating round in the intricacies of a Highland chatiche or a stately gavotte or something. Where does that door lead to? To the bedroom wing. And that's where the ghost appeared from the other night, I suppose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Uh-huh. The door's jar. Do you generally keep this door unlocked, sir? Why, no. But the key mysteriously disappeared about a week ago. James is having a new one made. So I must remind him about that. Alex! Alex, uh, Oh, we're up here, Walter. We're coming down. That's Walter McMorris. My dead cousin's son. Well, fellow, this must be a dreadful day for him. Yes, I, I'm afraid this is going to be a rather painful interview. Oh, hello, Walter. This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Sherlock Holmes, sir. I've heard about you and your friend, Dr. Watson. Walter, old man, I'm dreadfully sorry about your father. Are you now? Isn't that nice of you? Well, you'll be sorry enough when you hear that I'm going to take you to court and prove that I'm the real Earl of Loch Ness. Uh, Walter, you're out of your mind. Am I? No. Father was out of his because he kept quiet all these years. But I'm going to have my rights. I've looked up the records. I've had genealogists working for months. And I've got all the facts that prove you're an imposter. Oh, man, what are you talking about? You know well enough. When Sherlock Holmes here sent your great-uncle to the gallows 20 years ago, the title and estate should have come to my father. When I leave here tomorrow, I'm going straight to the finest lawyer in London. And man, if you believe this, why have you said nothing about it till now? Because I'm smart. I found out a thing or two since I've been staying here. And one of the things I found out is that your precious fiancé and her brother wouldn't look twice at you if it weren't for your money and the title. Shut up. You'll find out. She's a smart little filly, and she knows what kind of a track she's running. Are you dirty? My compliments, sir. A very professional uppercut. Yes, and a very well-deserved one. I... Offensive scoundrel. Sorry about this. Uh, please don't say anything in front of Betty. Don't upset her. I quite understand. Come along, Watson. Let's go and find our room. Nearly dinner time. Why are we wandering about here in the dark instead of having a glass of sherry with the others in the library? I'm a conscientious practitioner, Watson. I like to earn my fees. It uh, occurred to me that a further examination of this dining hall might prove profitable. Well, personally, Holmes, I think you're wasting your time on this case. <laughs> what makes you think that, old chap? It's perfectly obvious that young American fellow was impersonating the ghost a few nights ago. He knew his father was going to die and he wanted to build up the legend so as to make his own claim seem more believable. That's very sound reasoning, Watson. 
vertebralogical in his perception, he should repeat the performance now that his father is dead. Well, ghosts only walk at midnight. Why don't we go and have a glass of sherry? Shh. Hmm? What is it, Holmes? And I'm coming in from the library. The lighted candle. Yes? Who is it? It's me, Mrs. McClintock. Oh, you gave me quite a start. I heard voices and I knew the candles were not alight in here, so I came in to see who it was. You're watching for the ghost, I suppose. Well, you'll no be disappointed, gentlemen, though you may see more than you bargained for. Those that meddle with ghostly things that do not comprehend are playing with something much more dangerous than fire. Fire burns. But the shades on dead Holmes, Holmes, look up there in the gallery. The door's opening. It's the ghost. Aye, here he comes, the poor buddy. See the armor on him? And the way he's dragging one leg behind him. Yes, it's really quite an effective impersonation. And the twilight provides most appropriate lighting for his play acting, too. You mean it's the young American? Of course. Obviously. <coughs> look, look behind him. There's another figure. Yes. Dressed in the same kind of armor and carrying a sword. The game's a foot watching. The ghost has seen him. He's turning. The second figure's raising his sword. Look out! <laughs> Great heavens! He's knocked him through the railings. That must be a 20-foot fall. Come on, old fellow. Help me open his visor. Just a minute. Yes. It's Walter McMorris, the American. Though from the angle of his head, I would suggest that it might be the late Walter McMorris. Eh, Watson? He's dead all right, Holmes. Neck broken. Meanwhile, the second ticket has been able to slip back through that door and escape us. Come on, he was dressed in armor. He can't go very fast. Perhaps we can overtake him. And now back to tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure and the story of the limping ghost of Loch Ness. Confound it, Holmes. There's no trace of the ghost in the musician's gallery. You gave him too much of a start, I'm afraid. <laughs> of course you didn't find him. You'll never find him because he's not mortal. Mrs. McClintock, is the original suit of armor the one worn by the first Earl of Loch Ness still in the castle? Aye, sir. It's in the library through that door there. I'll take you to it. Don't bother, thank you. We'll find it. Come on, Watson. Bring that candle with you. All right, Joe. Huh? If you know what's good for you, you'll stop dabbling in matters you do not really can. Holmes, what do you make of the second girl? Another imposter, obviously. But who could it have been? That's what we have to find out, old chap. Undoubtedly, someone knew that the American Walter McMorris was impersonating the ghost and used this macabre method to kill him. But why kill him? Possibly his claims to the title and estate were valid. Or perhaps some fanatic was so devoted to the Lochner legend that he assumed the role of ghost and killed him for his sacrilege. Hold the candle a little higher, will you, old chap? Yeah. Hello. Here's a suit of armor, Holmes. Lying in a heap on the floor. Oh, on the floor, eh? Whereas it obviously belongs on that stand over there. It's perfectly clear what's happened. The second figure used this armor and slipped it back in here while we were examining the dead man. Possibly, Watson, possibly. At least this armor gives us a definite clue. But it limits the field of possible suspects. How do you mean, Holmes? Well, it's an interesting fact that the human race has grown definitely larger in the past 400 years. Very few modern men can wear authentic ancient armor like this. For example, take the first item on the top of the heap lying on the floor here. These gauntlets of chain mail. Try them on. 
Well, much too small for exactly. me. Either you nor I could have worn this suit. No, 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 nor could young Nolan, the estate agent. Whereas his sister could have done. Yes, so could Thomas Sabatra. He's a small fellow. And if it comes to that, Watson, our distinguished client, the young Earl of Lochnair, is himself a small man. Right, so he is. And he might easily have had a motive. Young McMorris had disputed his right to the title earlier in the day. But we mustn't jump to conclusions. Nevertheless, you see what valuable evidence this armor has become. Hello, hello. It sounds as if the rest of the party are on the scene. Yes, I suggest that we join them without making any reference to this suit of armor. Remember, old chap, one of them in there is a murderer. And we may have to set a trap to catch him. <laughs> Are you sure he's dead, Dr. Watson? There's no doubt about it. His neck was broken instantly by the fall. It's dreadful. Father and son both dying on the same day. And you say the real ghost came up behind him, Mr. Holmes, and struck him so they crashed through the railing up there. I said another figure dressed in armor and killed him, Mr. Nolan. It was a real ghost. I saw him with my own two eyes. He killed that man for trying to bring shame on the name of Loch Couldn't we get in touch with the police? How can I get a message to them tonight? Have you looked outside? We're almost completely snowed in. Snowed in? Oh, Eric, I'm frightened. Hush, darling. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. No, at least we have the assurance that the ghost will not limp again. Why? Well, the murderer has no further motive for impersonating the ghost. To walk now would be to support the dead American's claims. No. We shall spend a quiet night, and tomorrow I shall communicate with the proper authorities as to my quite definite notions regarding the murderer's identity. Uh, but if the ghost should walk again, Mr. Hurst... Well, then, sir, I shall know that at last I've encountered a truly supernatural crime and shall retire from the practice of, uh, of detection. <laughs> It's nearly two o'clock. You still over there by the window, puffing away that pipe of yours? <sighs> you know, I can't help feeling that young McMorris knows a great deal more than he told us. A deal more. There's a shifty look about him I don't like. Never did trust a fellow. Could look you squarely in the eye. But you feel the same way, Holmes? Holmes. Holmes, where are you? Holmes! Shh, Black Watson. Where have you been? I thought you were over there by the window. Uh, been, been talking to myself. Never mind that, old chap. Get your slippers on in the dressing gown. We're on the last lap of this strange, eventful tragedy. Oh, thank the Lord for that. Perhaps I can get some sleep. Holmes, where have you been? I went to the musician's gallery and baited the trap. Now it's ready to spring. Don't dawdle, Watson. Come I'm on, come on. I'm not dawdling. I'm not dawdling. What do you mean you, you baited a trap? You'll see for yourself in a few moments. As a matter of fact, I really baited it when I said downstairs that if the real ghost should walk again, I would retire from the practice of detection. I didn't understand you saying that myself. Well, I was tempting the murderer to show his hand once more. Come on, come on, please. Where are we going? To wait behind the curtain at the foot of the stairs leading to the musician's gallery. And I hope we don't have to wait very long. Let's go up and grab him. No, 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 no. They walk into my trap. 
He's coming towards the head of the stairs. Great start! Exactly. A simple piece of wire stretched across the gallery is remarkably effective, even with ghosts. Come on, Watson. Help me off with this visor. There we are. Good Lord, it's... It's James Nolan. Exactly. What's happened? You walked into a simple trap, my friend. I'm afraid the next trap will be more lethal. For it will undoubtedly prove to be the one beneath the gallows. Now that we're headed back for London, Holmes, perhaps you'll settle one or two points in the case that are bothering me quite a bit. Oh, with pleasure, my dear chap. What are they? I still don't see what Nolan's motive was in murdering the American. Oh, that should be obvious. He wanted to ensure that his sister's fiancé would enjoy undisputed title to the name and the states. Well, how did you know it was Nolan? When I examined the authentic suit of armor. You see, it was um, obvious it had never been worn. But I still don't quite oh, understand. come now, old chap. The suit of armor was in a heap on the floor. Yeah. And if it had been hastily discarded and get, um, well, the gauntlets were on top of the pile, you remember? Well, that's right, they were. If the suit had really been worn, the gauntlets would have been the first things to have been taken off, and so would have been um, underneath the pile. Hmm? Obviously, therefore, the armor had been disarranged in order to make people believe the real ghost had walked. <laughs> After the American's death, the suspects were four. Miss Nolan, her brother, Thomas, the butler, and... The Earl himself. Well, I ruled out Mrs. McClintock because you remember she was standing behind us at the time of the murder. Well, I'm beginning to understand. All the suspects except Nolan were small enough to have worn the armor. That's right. Therefore, only he could have pretended to use it. Pretended? But he, he did use oh, it. Oh, no, my dear fellow. Undoubtedly, he procured a similar one of modern manufacture. An amazing case, Holmes. An interesting one at any rate. And once again, old fellow, I'm possibly reminded of an old Scottish litany. Scottish litany? Which one's that? Oh, you remember it. From ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. Good Lord, deliver us. Well, Doctor, that was really a swell story. You know, for a while there, I was beginning to believe in ghosts. Well, I'm ashamed to admit it, but at the time, so was I. <laughs> you know, this sounds silly, but... I bet it would be fun to be one of those legendary English ghosts. You know, go around sticking your nose into everybody's business and playing practical jokes like mad and nobody able to figure out who did it. That would really be fun in a way. Well, you can go around scaring people all you want to, but not for me. I think a ghost leads a terrible life myself. For instance, a ghost can't have the pleasure of eating a nice, juicy steak. Yeah, or drinking a glass of really good wine. Ah, now you're talking, young fellow, my lad. Petri wine. Yeah, still talking. Uncle. You see, when I say good wine, I always mean Petri wine because you can depend on Petri. I know, I know. Why the Petri family has been making wine for generations. Handing on down from father to son, from father to son, all their skill and knowledge and experience. When you realize they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s, well, common sense tells you the Petri family knows practically all there is to know about the fine art of turning luscious grapes into clear, fragrant wine. Yep, whether you're looking for a swell wine to serve before dinner or with dinner or after dinner, for any occasion, you just can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Doctor, what story are you going to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a strange adventure that Holmes and I had in the English countryside. 
It concerns the apparent madness of a certain Colonel Warburton and the puzzling mystery of two dead dogs. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Crooked Man. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Lucille Ball as she stars in My Favorite Husband next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for My Favorite Husband and an episode first aired in 1948. We present My Favorite Husband, a new series based on the delightful stories of Isabel Scott Rorick's gay and sophisticated Mr. and Mrs. Cougar, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. Ten years ago, Elizabeth Elliot decided to marry an eligible bachelor. So she picked handsome man-about-town George Cougat. Because, as Liz put it... George was the most eligible, eligible bachelor eligible. Well, since, <laughs> since their marriage, neither Liz nor George has said much about children. But then, children have never said much about them either. Now, that's because they don't have any. The children, I mean. In fact, the only time it ever came up was when they returned from their honeymoon and George was showing Liz around their new house. Wait a minute, George. What's this little bedroom here? Well, uh, I kind of thought it would look cute and pink and blue with nursery rhymes on the walls. But uh, we can fix it up temporarily as a maid's room. What do you mean, temporarily as a maid's room? Well, someday uh, we may want a couple of little ones. You mean a couple of little maids instead of one big one? <laughs> Well, that was, as I say, ten years ago. So today, Mr. and Mrs. Cougat are still just two people who live together and like it. Lucille Ball is Liz with Richard Denning as George in My Favorite Husband. It is morning at the Cougat house. Katie, the maid, has gone out to the mailbox to see if the postman left any ads or blotters... And Liz is cooking breakfast, and George is still upstairs dressing. Finally, Liz goes to the foot of the stairs and calls. George! Yes, darling? I've got your breakfast ready. The toast is burned just the way you like it. <laughs> okay, I'll be right down. Yes, Katie. Uh, why does Mr. Cougat like burnt toast? I don't know. He developed a taste for it after we were married. <laughs> Good morning, Liz, darling. Morning, Katie. Morning, Mr. Cougat. George, aren't you going to kiss me this morning? On an empty stomach? <laughs> Certainly. Give me a kiss. I'm fresh out. Oh, come on, George. You must have an old kiss lying around somewhere. Okay. There. How's that? 
That wasn't just lying around. It was dead. (laughs) That had all the zip of the old George Cougat. Well, the old George Cougat better get a new zipper. (laughs) What are you laughing about, Katie? (laughs) I was just thinking about my first husband, Clarence. Now, there was a kisser. Good. No, ugly. (laughs) Come on, George, your breakfast is ready. Oh, so am I. Uh, where's the morning paper, Katie? George, are you going to bury yourself in that paper again this morning? Oh, I just want to look at the financial page and see how the stock market is doing. Oh, here it is, Mr. Kugat. Oh, thanks, Katie. Uh, let's see now. Amalgamated copper, fisk tires. Hmm, AT&T is down two points. I'd better get some. Hmm, TP&L is down one point. Well, I'd better get some. Hmm, SFO&P is down three points. I'd better get some. Hmm. Uh, what's the matter? BVD is down two cents. You need some. Yes, you've been looking. You've been showing. <laughs> oh, here's an item about Jane Kendall. I have to get her something, George. She's expecting her baby. Yeah, baby. I don't want to have any of that last-minute rushing. Yeah, rushing. You know, having a baby must be pretty tough. Yeah, pretty tough. George, are you listening to me? Oh, sure, Liz. Every word. What did I say? Say? Why, uh... Oh, you said those Russians are pretty tough babies. (laughs) Didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh. Tough Russians are pretty babies? Wrong again. Pretty Russian babies are tough? (laughs) Never mind. Yugoslav babies? (laughs) Never mind. If you weren't lost in that financial page, you'd hear what I said. Well, but Liz, in my business, it's important that I know what's happening in the stock market. I have to keep an eye on the bulls and the bears so that some wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't make me the goat. After all, I work in a bank. Sounds like the Chicago (laughs) stockyards. I don't see what's so wonderful about that financial page. It bores me stiff. I haven't the slightest interest in finances. Well, that's because you're not in business, darling. Say, uh, was there any mail this morning? Yes, ma'am. Is there any mail this morning? Yes, the morning mail. <laughs> well, that sounds reasonable. Hmm, is that all? One letter? That's all, Mr. Cougat. But the people next door got a lot of mail this morning. Shall I go over and borrow some? <laughs> Don't bother, Katie. Open the letter, George. It's probably from someone who's on their vacation. All of our friends are out of town. Let's see now, who do we know that went to the mountains or the seashore? It's from Barclay Brothers Department Store. Oh, it can't be. Why not? Who do we know that would spend their vacation at a department store? (laughs) Nobody. But we do know somebody who would run up a bill there last month of $250, don't we, Liz? Liz? What's new on the financial page, George? (laughs) Liz. Oh, come on, George. Tell me about the bears and the bulls again, George. Will you, George? Huh? <laughs> Liz, this is serious. You went over your allowance again, didn't you? Yes, George. Oh, Liz. What am I going to do with you? Raise my allowance? <laughs> I can't raise your allowance. I didn't get that mortgage deal with that real estate woman in Florida. Oh. Old man Atterbury must have found out about it because I didn't get that raise. Well, tell him you can't raise a wife and children on your salary. Well, but Liz, Mr. Atterbury knows we don't have any children. Well, then tell him we're expecting some on the next boat. (laughs) Boat from where? Wherever children come from. 
<laughs> Had a talk with your mother lately, Liz? Of course. What did she say? She gave me a book to read. You know, what was the name of it? How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> well, that ought to do the trick. Liz, there's only one sensible thing for us to do. I knew you'd think of something, George. We've got to live within our means. Mm-hmm. Stick to our budget. Wonderful idea. It's not only sensible, it's impossible. <laughs> it's really very simple, Liz. How? Well, just don't charge things we don't need. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Of course. George, from now on, I promise I won't charge a thing we don't need. Good. I'll pay cash for it. <laughs> Mrs. Cougat, I didn't know you could knit. Neither did I, Katie. How do you like it? Oh, it's adorable. Um, what is it? Baby booties. They're for Mrs. Kendall. Do you think they'll fit her? Katie, <laughs> Mrs. Kendall's going to have a baby. Oh, are you going to be there? No, she's just having the family and a few close doctors. <laughs> Mrs. Cougat, wouldn't it be easier for you to buy Mrs. Kendall some baby booties instead of getting all tangled up in that yarn? Yes, Katie, but I'm trying to help Mr. Cougat save some money. And baby booties cost $5 a pair. But how much did all this yarn cost? $10, but that's for five balls. But you won't need five balls of yarn to make one pair of baby booties. Well, I'm using the rest to make a sweater to match. To match the booty? No, a sweater to match the skirt I picked up for $29.95. <laughs> I think it's wonderful of you to help Mr. Cougat save that way. Hmm. Well, the only trouble is I had to charge all this stuff. So I think it would be better if we just didn't say anything about it, Katie. I understand, Mrs. Cougat. He'll probably laugh when he finds out that I've learned to knit. Yes, but he'll stop when he finds out how much it costs. <laughs> oh, I better hide this knitting. Hey, anybody home? Oh, it's only Corey. Yes, mankind's gift to womankind. In the living room, Corey. Hi, Liz. It's Corey Cartwright, that gay dog. Throw him a bone, Katie. <laughs> oh, I'm not in the mood for jokes, Liz. I'll put your hat in the hall, Mr. Cartwright. What's the matter, Corey? I met the most beautiful girl at a beautiful party in a beautiful penthouse last night. Didn't you have fun? Yes, the beautiful girl and I spent a beautiful evening looking at the beautiful moon. Sounds beautiful. Not quite. Why? She had an ugly husband. What was his name? I don't know. He never did catch me. Sorry, <laughs> what makes you so fickle? Well, I'm not fickle, Liz. I just can't make up my mind. Well, sooner or later, the right girl will come along, and then you'll settle down, and she'll be knitting these. Liz, am I seeing things? Are you knitting baby things? Yes, baby booty. Liz, you mean you? Why didn't you tell me? Well, I didn't know you'd be that interested. <laughs> interested? Of course I'm interested. Congratulations. Thanks. Why, I had no idea. Neither did I. <laughs> In fact, I was just telling Katie I didn't know I could do it myself. <laughs> of course you can, Liz. I think every married woman should. You do? <laughs> Certainly. What's marriage got to do with it? But good old George, he hasn't said a word about this, Liz. Well, good old George doesn't know about it. I'll bet George... I beg your pardon? George doesn't know about it, and don't you tell him. 
But why? Shouldn't he know? No, Mr. Atterbury didn't give him his raise, and this wasn't on our budget, so I had to charge it. It's for everything these days. But really, Liz, don't you think you should tell him? No, he'd only worry about the budget. And besides, if George found out about this, he'd want me to take it back. Yes, Cartwright. Well, I'm glad you did call me. <laughs> I had no idea Mrs. Cougat was expecting a bundle of joy. <laughs> no wonder he's been wanting a raise. Oh, yeah, sure, I agree with you. I'll call him into my office right away. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Cartwright. Goodbye. <laughs> well, <laughs> so young Cougat's finally going to have an addition to the family. Eh? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Miss Johnson, you come into my office. Mr. Cougat, Mr. Atterbury wants to see you right away. Uh-oh. Has he heard about the collapse of that Florida deal? Not that I know of. I didn't tell him. Okay. I'll go right in. I wonder who told the old man about my failure with that real estate woman. I'll bet that's the reason he didn't give me a raise. Well, after all, it might happen to anybody. Huh? Oh, George. <laughs> George, my boy, my boy. Come in, come in. Sit down. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, George, George, I want to have a talk with you. Shall we say, uh, father to son? Uh. Well, is it uh, about the raise I didn't get? Uh, yes, yes. So, no, that is... Uh, <laughs> George, George, I realize that you can't raise children on your salary. <laughs> of course, you don't have any children, yes? <laughs> no, but we're expecting some on the next boat. <laughs> what? Oh, nothing. That's, that's just something Liz told me this morning. Uh, look, Mr. Atterbury, I, I know why you called me in here. Oh, you do? Uh, yes, and I just want to say that anybody can make a mistake. <laughs> a mistake? Yes, maybe I tried too hard. <laughs> now, my boy, you know, it isn't as easy as you think. <laughs> well, then, then, then you're not angry? Angry? Oh, on the contrary, you've got my best wishes, my boy. <laughs> oh, thanks, Mr. Atterbury. You know, that woman had me worried for a while. I can imagine. <laughs> she, she just didn't like the idea. Well, women are funny sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah, she, she wanted me to do the whole thing by myself. But, uh, I understood that you both wanted... Oh, I did. She didn't. Really? And... And don't forget, we were a thousand miles from each other. A thousand miles? Sure, she was in Florida. Good heavens, now wait a minute. If she was in Florida, then oh, I... By telephone, see? Uh, the whole thing was arranged over the telephone. Well, that settles it, George, my boy. I'm not only going to give you that raise. I'm going to pay that telephone bill. <laughs> Hi, Liz. Darling, you're looking at a new man, the brand-new 1948 model George Cougat. How much did you get for the old one? Plenty. How about a kiss? Aren't you afraid you'll dent your fenders? <laughs> Come on, darling. How about a kiss for your hard-working husband? Nope, not in the mood. Since when? This morning. 
I'll bet I can make you kiss me. I'll bet you can. Okay. Well, don't let me convince you. <laughs> All right. Well, first I'll put my arms around you like this. Mm-hmm. Now you put your arms around me like that. Mm-hmm. Now tilt your chin up. Mm-hmm. There. Now, now when I say a word, you say the name of the first fruit you think of. Mm-hmm. Ready? Okay, but I won't kiss you. Candied. Orange. Baked. Apple. Stewed. Prune. Mm. <laughs> I win. You kissed me. But you tricked me. That was a dirty, mean, low-down, underhanded trick. Trick me again, George. Uh-uh. You might get to like it. George Cougat, there's only one word for a man like you. What is it? Prune. <laughs> okay, scatterbrain. Mm. There. Prune is a beautiful word, George. Oh, wonderful word, Prune. I love you. Yeah, I love you too, Liz. Guess what happened at the office today? I don't know. Sit down and tell me all about it. Well, old man Atterbury called me in and... Hey, Liz, what's this? What's what? Well, it's uh, knitted stuff behind the chair. Knitted stuff, George? Yeah. Looks like, like baby shoes. Oh, that. Probably dust balls. <laughs> Liz, knitted dust balls? Oh, you may not know it, George, but we have the best-looking dust balls in town. <laughs> well, wait a minute. There's a whole lot of yarn down in here, too. Look, what, what is it, Liz? All right, Sherlock, you win. They're baby booties. Baby booties? Mm-hmm. Liz, you mean you? Didn't think I could do it, did you? <laughs> well, sure, but... But Liz, darling, this is wonderful. I thought it was pretty good myself. (laughs) Well, gosh, honey, why didn't you tell me? I was afraid you'd be sore. I charged all that yarn to our account, and I went over our budget again. Oh, all this yarn to make one pair of baby booties? Hmm. What are you going to do with the rest of it? Why, uh, um... Well, what, Liz? Well, uh, uh, make more baby booties. More? Mm -hmm. Oh, good night. How many will you need? Well, you never can tell, George. It might be triplets. Triplets? Mm-hmm. Holy cats. I, I told old man Atterbury we were expecting some on the next boat. I didn't know the fleet was in. Katie! Katie, come quick. Mr. Cougat's fainted. Well, what happened, Mrs. Cougat? I don't know. He said something about the fleet's in, then he sank. <laughs> Can you hear me? Oh. George, this is Liz. This is Liz. Oh. Glad to know you, Liz. I'm George. Oh, I oh. think he's coming too, Mrs. Cougar. Yeah, come on, George. Oh, where am I? You're in bed. Oh, good night, Liz. Come on, George. Sit up. Up, oh. Daisy. That's it. What happened? You fainted, Magnolia Blossom. Oh, yeah. Oh, but... But, Liz, you're the one that should be in bed, not me. Now, just stay where you are, George. You're as pale as a ghost. How did I get up here? Katie and I carried you. She carried, Mr. Cougat. I dragged. (laughs) You put on a little weight since the last time we carried you upstairs. (laughs) Oh, Liz, you, you shouldn't be lifting anything heavy now, especially upstairs. Well, Katie helped. Who brought me in here? Katie and I. Who put me to bed? Katie and I. Liz. What's the matter? Who put on my pajamas? That brought the 
color back to his cheeks, Mrs. Cougar. <laughs> Katie went downstairs, George. Oh. And I brought back this. Here, Mr. Cougar, take a sip of this brandy. It'll mm. make you feel better. Are you sure that's brandy, Katie? Yes, ma'am. Remember the last time I fainted, you got hold of Mr. Cougar's bottle of Vitalis. My Vitalis? It went down all right, but I had to give my stomach a 60-second workout. <laughs> oh, don't worry, ma'am. This is brandy, all right. You're sure? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Positive. <laughs> Oh, darn it, Corey. I haven't been able to do any work all day. Look at the stuff piled up on my desk. So Liz finally told you about the baby, huh, George? Well, not exactly, but when I found those baby booties, she could hardly deny it. But but she doesn't seem too interested. That's the way women are, George. You have to be very understanding at a time like this. Mm. Why don't you try to draw it out of her? Hint around. Maybe she'll confess. I, I tried that already. But, but she acted like she didn't even know what I was talking about. Why? What did you say to her? Oh, I told her I understood that women who are expecting a baby get peculiar desires for food. So Liz said what kind of food, and I said kiddingly, oh, like ice cream and melted cheese poured over and a dill pickle on the top. What did Liz say? Well, she just said, what's peculiar about that? <laughs> that sounds like something Liz would say. Mm-hmm. I think I'll call her and see how she feels. Go ahead. You've only called her about 30 times today. Uh, hello, Katie. Uh, how's Mrs. Cougat feeling, Katie? What? The hospital? What's the matter, George? Oh, Liz has gone to the hospital. Already? Hello, Katie. Uh, which hospital did she go to? Yeah. Yeah. To phone her there? Well, I'll do better than that. I'll go, I'll go over there. Goodbye, Katie. Now keep calm, George. Getting excited won't help him. Yeah, keep calm. You're right, Corey. Don't get excited. Where's my hospital? I mean, where's my hat? Oh, wait a minute, George. Keep calm. I'll go with you. Now, don't get excited. Okay, okay. I'm calm. I'm calm. Uh, Let's go. All right, but you can't go that way. What way? With a telephone on your head. Oh. for coming to the hospital with me, Liz. It was wonderful of you. Well, you're welcome, Jane, honey. I'm only glad I could do something to help. You have. Norman was so worried. He's read so many stories in the paper about taxi drivers having to stop on the way to the hospital because the baby arrived ahead of time. I wonder if they leave the meter running when that happens. (laughs) You make me feel good, Liz, when I probably should be feeling horrible. Do I, honey? I am... I guess you're always a little anxious with the first one. Well, you haven't anything to worry about, Jane. You'll be all right. And when it's all over, you'll realize that this has been a very wonderful experience for you. Something you wouldn't take a million dollars for. Uh, do you think you could stay with me, Liz? I mean, um... Until the baby arrives? Of course, honey. I wouldn't think of leaving. Thanks. Norman should be here pretty soon. What do you want, Jane? A boy or a girl? Well, I'd sort of like a little girl. How about Norman? Oh, he says he just wants a boy or a girl. Well, I hope he isn't disappointed. (laughs) George, are you sure this is the right hospital? I don't know. Uh, Wait here, Corey. I'll ask that nurse at the desk. Um, I beg your pardon, nurse. Yes? Uh, Do you have babies here? Yes. Um, uh, This is the place, Corey. (laughs) Okay. Is there something I can do for you? Uh, no, thanks. My wife's doing it. Your wife? 
Mrs. Cougat, I'm Mr. Cougat. We have the same name. That's understandable. Is she here? Yes, she is, Mr. Cougat. But you can't see her now. She left a message for you. What is it? She said to tell you that she's decided to stay at the hospital until the baby arrives. Oh. uh, Will you give her a message for me? Certainly. Uh, Just tell her I think that she's made a wise decision. George, don't you think you should go home and wait until you hear from Liz like the nurse told you? Oh, of course, Corey, but I have to get this stuff before I go home. Isn't it a little premature? Of course not. I want to be ready. But look at all the stuff you bought already. Electric trains, baseball bat, drum and bugle, football helmet, boxing gloves. Maybe I should get him a football, too. George, do you realize that a newborn infant can't even stand up, much less play football? Why don't you get it a a rattle? A rattle? Oh, rattles are for kids. My son is going to play right tackle for Princeton. I hope he's in shape. They play their first game next week. (laughs) Now, Corey, let's not be silly about this kid. No, let's not be that. Obviously, he can't play right tackle with Princeton next week. Oh, obviously. He doesn't know the signals. (laughs) George, now, suppose it isn't a boy. Suppose it's a girl. Girl. Oh, no, it can't be a girl. Liz wouldn't do that to me. Liz hasn't got anything to say about it. What do you mean, Liz hasn't got anything to say about it? She's its mother. Yeah, but how can Liz make the child be a boy or a girl? Well, she has to learn to discipline it sometime. Oh, Mrs. Cougat, did Mrs. Kendall have her baby? Yes, she did. Is Mr. Cougat home? Uh, yes, ma'am. He and Mr. Cartwright are in the study and acting mighty strange, if you ask me. Oh, really? I'll go in. Will dinner be ready soon? Yes, ma'am, in about a half hour. George! Oh, George! What in the name of... George! Look out, Corey. Here comes the Eastbound Express. Liz, darling. Hi, Liz. Liz, what are you doing home so soon? What do you mean soon? It's after seven. (laughs) Yeah, but but what about the baby? It was born an hour ago. An hour ago? Sure. But, 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 how'd you get out of the hospital? I walked out. How do you think? (laughs) Oh, but, but didn't the doctor say anything to you? Yeah, he said goodbye. Well, I knew medical science had made progress, but I didn't know it was anything like this. What about the baby, Liz? What is it? It's a boy. A boy? Oh, what did I tell you, Corey? Oh, Liz, who does he look like? He looks like Norman Kendall. (laughs) Yeah, I knew it. Who? Norman Kendall. Who'd you expect him to look like? You? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. <laughs> well, after all, I am his father. <laughs> what? Now, listen. Excuse me, Mrs. Cougat. The hospital just phoned to tell you that it was twins. Twins? Oh, give me time. I just became the father of a boy. This one's a girl. Congratulations, George. Now you're a mother, too. <laughs>
Oh, Liz, darling, why didn't you tell me Jane and Norman Kendall were expecting a baby? I told you the other morning at breakfast that you were too busy reading the financial page. Oh, uh, that reminds me. Where's the evening paper? I'm sitting on it. Sitting on it? Why? Because I want to tell you about Mitzi, and I don't want you to get me mixed up with Mitzi like you did with Jane. All right. What is it? Mrs. Jordan says Mitzi is expecting. Who's Mitzi? Her cocker spaniel. <laughs> Are you asleep? Not yet. Can I sit on the side of your bed? Sure. There. Isn't this cozy? Mm-hmm. George, your bed's higher than mine. Maybe it's because you're sitting on my stomach. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, darling. Is that better? Much. George? Yes, Liz? I'll bet I can make you kiss me. I'll bet you can't. All right. First, I put my arms around you. Mm-mm. Ah, but I won't bite on this. I taught it to you. Now, tilt your chin up like this. Now, ready? Yeah, I'm ready, but I won't bite. Candied orange. Mm-mm. Baked apple. Mm-mm. Stewed, uh, stewed... Oh, darn, what is that other word? Oh, you mean prune? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Liz, you tricked me. Uh, good night, George. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's the Screen Guild Theater, followed by The Great Gildersleeve. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.